We're, we're in verse 1 tonight of Philippians chapter 2, so once you're there, say amen. amen. And um, like this is really, really, uh, I could say this, let me say this before I say anything else. We have a great rotation of Bible teachers on Thursday night. You know, we're so blessed and, you know, our heart is to really raise up and train up um, expositors and preachers and teachers of the Word of God and uh, so, you know, I just want to... I want to thank God for that, you know, whether it's uh, pastors, they're all pastors, but Fernando and Emmanuel and Jim and Ray Todd and, you know, there's a long list. And so uh, we give God praise, right? And um, yeah, you can, you can do that. I get blessed. Even if I'm not here, we're normally uh, watching or listening and, um, and it's good, right? Because it's not, it's not all about the person who's delivering the message, it's about the message that's been given to us in the scriptures because it's the word of God that's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So um, with that in mind tonight, Philippians chapter two, stand up and um, you know, this, this section of scripture that we're gonna be in tonight is really, really important and powerful and life-transforming and probably deeper than um, maybe not than you realize, but probably deeper than you've really, um, you know, maybe than you realize. You know, it's, it's a section of scripture that really demands our pursuit. So the Bible says in verse one, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, we got any of that here tonight? Oh my gosh, do we have any? No, it, my Bible doesn't say that. I'm asking you a question. Do we have any of that here tonight? Yes. Okay, good. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, underline it, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, say this with me, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, have this mind, like the one he's been talking about. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we say amen. We say amen to your word tonight. We say amen to that section of scripture that, that blesses us and ministers to us and speaks to us and is undoubtedly deeper and more profound than we've ever plumbed. And so, God, be present. You are present, God. But we pray that you would make manifest your presence among us tonight as we 
as we consider the words of Scripture, as we consider your revelation, as we consider your Son. God, we pray that you would, that you would pull us in, pull us into a place where, where he is central, where he's centralized. God, where, where the only thing in this moment that we could, we could see is him. Father, we need that. Some of us are there tonight. Thank God for that. And some of us, God, some of us are floating in the ether. Some of us are distracted. Some of us, God, some of us have many, many things on our minds. And, and many of those things are good things, but, but we need the good thing tonight. Yes. We need your son. We need full vision. We need our hearts centered. And, and we need your peace that surpasses all understanding to flood us. And so bless us tonight, we pray, as we study your scripture in Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So I don't know who your favorite theologian is, but one of my favorite theologians, his name is Karl Barth. And uh, he is, was a 20th century theologian, um, honestly, like really, really challenging to read. I mean, you know, you read his stuff and you're like, man, I, I didn't get, that's just so over my head. So, you, so for me at least, it's like read, reread, 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 and then get a couple commentaries on what, the, what his commentary is. I mean, it's just so profound. But one thing I love, probably didn't encourage you to get his works, but I, I would. Uh, if I were you. One thing I love about him that maybe I appreciate more than anything is that he centralizes the person of Jesus in his understanding of theology. Like when you read his works, it doesn't matter what he's talking about. He could be talking about creation. He could be talking about um, the darkness that covered the face of the earth. He could be talking about various miracles that were done in the Bible. He could be talking about mercy or grace or love from the perspective of the Father. Um, when we're talking about the Trinity, he could be talking about the Trinity. Everything for him, everything for, for him was centralized back to the person of Jesus. And, and that ministers to me, you know, because I think that's really where our lives need to be. We need to be centralized. We need to be anchored. We need to be tied to, you know, um, one of the, one, uh, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Charles Wesley. Um, he, in writing a hymn that I know you would be familiar with, he talked about the proneness of his heart to wander. You know, the proneness of my heart to want, and I think, man, I, I, I would say probably most of us can at least in our honest moments acknowledge that we have the tendency, right, to, to just by nature kind of drift. We can just drift. And so coming back to the person of Christ is so important. And I say all of that to say, this is one of those scriptures in the Bible. You'll hear from me all the time, right? Every Every verse, every word, every chapter in the Bible is important. There are some that are just like exceedingly significant, and this is one of those sections of Scripture that is exceedingly significant. Um, uh, for all of the apostles, or for all of the, excuse me, epistles, I would say this is, this is central. Um, this is a theological epicenter. This is not just another portion of Scripture. And you know, it's taken years for me to understand this. 
And I, I want to encourage you because, you know, we may read these verses tonight and some of these verses in these verses um, are really familiar to us and can provoke us to an amen. But, but you know, the scripture, this scripture really demands a, a, a meditation, a thoughtful consideration, a pondering. And so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to do that. Paul, of course, has been, as it's, it's been, you know, so well laid out to you, Paul, of course, is writing to a church that was very close to his heart, the church at Philippi. Of all of the churches that Paul planted, by the way, it's my favorite church planting story. Acts chapter 16 is just so wild, you know, it's so, such a crazy story. Um, and then the composition of that early church reminds me a lot of Awaken Las Vegas. You know, you've got, you've got a, a slave girl who was formerly demon-possessed. She was just a wild, wild, wild cat, wild girl. Um, and then you had this really wealthy lady, Lydia, who was a seller of purple, and, and um, she was there by the, by the water with a group of women that had gathered to pray on Shabbat. And then you had this soldier and his family. This guy was, um, you know, I mean, he didn't have suicidal ideation, but he, he was in trouble when all of the jail cell doors sprung open after the earthquake and he understood that his life was forfeit for every for every prisoner that escaped and so he was about to kill himself right i mean he's he's lit i mean that's rock bottom that is rock bottom and in that place you know he hears the message of the gospel that's the composition of the church at philippi and then God does this beautiful work in this church. You know, there's so much affirmation that the Apostle Paul gives. And, um, and they were a solid congregation. And they were invested in kingdom advancement. And they were the only church of all of the churches Paul planted that consistently supported him. And so Paul has been relaying some of these things. And he's been talking um, about his commitment to them and his love for them and his willingness, even though he wanted to depart and be with Christ. You know, it was more beneficial or advantageous for them that he was present, even as he was writing this epistle from prison. You know, he's mentioned some of the schisms that existed in the church, or at least he will mention this. But here in verse 1 of chapter 2, he launches into this beautiful description of what their relationships should look like. What their relationships should look like because of who they were in Christ and because of their sincere experience with Jesus. And so, so he says this in verse 1. So if there is, so if there is, so if there is, I just want to let you know that Paul is not posing this as a question. He's not like, you know, I'm not sure if there is. Um, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. You guys can let me know later on. This preposition can also be translated since. So it would be equally fair to say, um, so since there is, uh, it could also be translated because he could have said, so because there is, it's, the, the word if is like rhetorical. Paul is essentially saying, hey, you, you and I know this to be true. Like we're, we're familiar enough with the church at Philippi and the gathering of God's people there that we can say definitively we know these things are true. What, what, what is true? Because there is encouragement in Christ. Because there is comfort from love, because there is participation in the Spirit, because there is affection and sympathy. So Paul is saying, listen, 
You know, as we consider the good work of God among you, right, there, there needs to be a sincere response to the reality of what Christ has done. Because he has, anybody here been encouraged by Christ? Raise, raise your hand or say amen, shout out loud, whatever, whatever. Anybody here been touched by his love? Anybody participating in the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life? And yes, whistling is all right. Clapping is good. You can jump up and down if you want. We don't have tambourines or flags, so maybe next uh, Thursday night when someone else is teaching. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, any, any affection and sympathy present within, within the congregation of God's people? Yeah, right. So he says, because of this, because your experience with Jesus has been real, like he's not, he's, what he's not saying is, um, he's not saying, hey, because you're ritualistic, because you know you just put your time into church, you don't really want to be there, but you check the box. He's not saying because you know you're just a heartless weekly attender. He's not saying that. He's saying because there's a real authentic work of Christ in your life. Um, he says because of that, the things that I'm going to say, you should want. I mean, this should, be, this should be an easy bridge for you to cross. There shouldn't be opposition. There shouldn't be resistance. There shouldn't be kicking against the goads. This, the following things I'm going to say should come naturally because those things are true. And then he also says this, complete my joy. Complete, before he gets into the list, he says, complete my joy. And so Paul, Paul is saying He's going to lay out the descriptions of unity in the body of Christ, the way that we ought to comport our relationships one with another. Like how, I mean, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. What does the Bible say about how our relationships should look? I know how they look. I know how they, look, I can't stand here before you tonight and say as a pastor that across the church globally or across the church nationally or across the church in this state or even across the church in this church, the things that Paul is going to say are always evident. And you know, sometimes our, our own personal experience of church life, sometimes, you know, sometimes there are expectations that we were hoping for and wanting for that just, that went unmet. You know, or we had these ideas and we went into this church setting um, or any church setting kind of naively almost thinking that well you know what Christians they're they'll have it all together they'll always love perfectly they'll always say the right thing there'll be no backbiting there'll be no backstabbing there'll be no gossip there'll be no slander people will always be nice you're always nice right you're always nice People will always be kind. People will always be generous. People, I say all of that, and, and you know, you know, like there's tension there. There's tension because not only do we live in a fallen world, but we as fallen people inhabit and bless you. Yes. I just want to be kind to you tonight and say, and say bless you. We, we, as, we as fallen people inhabit the church. We inhabit the church, but the thing is this, we've got to have an anchor to go back to that ties us to what his expectation is. What is his expectation? Like, forget your expectation, and forget the pastor's expectation, unless the pastor's expectation is biblical and is motivated with, with, with biblical purpose. 
But what is it that he says? And, and Paul's like, listen, complete my joy in this, all right? Complete my joy in this. If you're reading NKJV, it says, fulfill my joy or make full my joy. Paul is saying he's going he's gonna to give like a, he is going to give a plea for unity, a beautiful unity in the church. And as a leader, right, as a leader, he's like, man, he's not saying do this for me, but in a way he's saying Keep me in mind. Keep me in mind. Keep me in mind because leaders in the church, the, the most difficult thing for leaders in the church to deal with is disunity. It's factions. It's schism. It's conflict, right? And it's not just the relational piece of that. Um, leaders in the church know that unity pleases the heart of the Father, and so when there's conflict within the body of Christ, leaders know it's displeasing to God. Leaders know that disunity in the body of Christ creates mission drift. Like we can't fulfill the purpose that God has for us if we're disunified, which is precisely why the enemy spends so much time seeking to bring division within the people of God. And so Paul makes Paul knows, Paul knows this church loves him, and Paul knows that this church knows how much he has invested blood, sweat, tears, sacrifice. I'm not exaggerating, because that's how the church was planted. I mean, the apostle Paul was beaten with Silas. He wasn't beaten with Silas. I mean, that's kind of a weird picture. But he and Silas were beaten with rods. They were placed in stocks. They were bloodied. They were bruised. And they were singing praise to God. And that was, you know, it was, it was the persecution of the apostle Paul and Silas that was the seed of this church plant. And so Paul could like literally say, listen, you guys, I have wept and I've bled and I've sweated over the planting of this church. You know, it came with a lot of cost to me personally. And so complete my joy say yes to these things watch this complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love that doesn't mean dating the same person by the way having the same love being in full accord and of one mind so there are there are four things four things that we as christians say yes to relationally if the church is going to be what God desires it to be. The first one is this, be like-minded. Be like-minded. Um, he's saying, think by the book. He's saying, let your thinking be guided and directed by the word of God, right? Your, your mind, your minds need to be shaped by the scripture, not by your opinions, the mind, your mind needs to be shaped by the word of God, not by the dictates of an organization. There, there need to, Paul isn't necessarily talking about uniformity, but he is certainly talking about unity. Like there are a lot of things in the word of God that we might have the freedom to have different opinions on. But you know, God help us to not be so focused on those things in a way where we're we're more focused on them than we are on the things that we have in common. There are things in Scripture that there should be a uniformity of belief in. 
I'm talking about the deity of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the triune Godhead. I'm talking about the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you and me. I'm talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I'm talking about the way we as believers are called to comport our lives. Like these things aren't up for grabs. And, and what one thing that helps create unity in the body of Christ amongst the people of God is when we identify those, those issues that we need to be united on and we plant our flag on them and we focus. That's where we focus. I will tell you guys right now, in a culture that is so splintered and fragmented, that splintering and fragmentation has, has influenced the church. And I know many churches and pastors today that are so focused on issues that are not essential, it has led to a separation and a disunity in the body of Christ. The Bible says in Amos 3.3, how can two walk together unless they're in agreement? The second thing Paul says here, things we should say yes to, is have the same love. Have the same love. So we're obviously talking about what Jesus said um, in response to the lawyer who said to him, what's the greatest of all the commandments seeking to test him? And Jesus said, well, the first is this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so we have the same love, right? We have the same love. The, the, the central thing that we love is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then we also share the love of the triune Godhead with one another. We walk in love. Jesus said it like this, by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You guys know what that word, you, of course you know, there are four Greek words that we translate into our English word love, storge, eros, phileo, and then agape, and this agape is the highest form of love. It is this, it's it's self-giving love, which we'll talk about in just a second. He said to them, be of full accord or be in one accord. That means, that means we're living soul to soul with one another. That means that we are in tune with each other, right? We have, we have the same love. Uh, we're guided and directed, united in what the Bible teaches, the scriptures, and, and with respect to our hearts, soul to soul, we are in tune one with another. Um, I play guitar, and, and if you play guitar, you know the strings from, from the top down, E-A-D-G-B-E, E-A-D-G-B-E. If you don't know how to memorize that, this is a great um, way to memorize the acronym. Every acid dealer gets busted eventually, right? <laughs> that's, that's how I memorized it. And it was pertinent to me at the time. So, so the thing is this, like on your guitar, when you strum your guitar, um, if one string is out of tune, right? And you can tell if our, our worship leaders are always on it, man. They're always tuning up and making sure that um, all the strings are in tune because they know if one string is out of tune, even the slightest, like you will be able to tell and it will distract from the beauty of the chord that is being played. Uh, you could be strumming a, uh, a nice big fat open E up higher on the neck and when you strum that, if one of those strings is out of tune, it's like instead of making a beautiful noise, it's kind of, it's kind of annoying, it's distracting, it's unnerving, something's wrong. You don't have to be a 
professional musician that's been schooled at Berkeley School of Music to know something's not right. And so Paul is simply saying, like, collectively in the church, like, this is, we need to be in tune with one another, right? We need to be in tune with God, and we need to be in tune with one another, because when one part of the body is out of tune, that noise, that, that sound, that beautiful sound that we're supposed to make comes out much differently. He says, the fourth thing tonight is, be of one mind so the fourth thing we say yes to is that we have one mind this simply means that we're all on the same mission there's one purpose like there are a lot of purposes i'm certain like in this room tonight you all have an individual calling of god and there are things that god has placed on your heart but what emerges what rises to the top what when we're talking about purpose what comes to the top above every other purpose is the fulfillment of the great commission are you, are you guys with me? I'll pause and I'll wait and I'll take a breath. It's a, it's a great commission. And so united together, this was what Pastor Kenny was saying tonight when, you know, he was sharing the opportunity for us to gather together as the church here in Las Vegas and to go out and advance the gospel. Now listen, you advance the gospel all the time. I was having a conversation with Gary tonight and um, Gary runs our gospel advancement department. He was talking about his ministry to people that he's had in his life for for so many years and he is evangelizing he is being a witness his life is a testimony and that is as evangelistic as taking 10,000 bibles and distributing through the streets of of las vegas you know it's it's all gospel witness but this is what god has called us to we should be saying yes to all those things i want to encourage you tonight like just take some inventory on that. Are you operating in a way where you're like-minded, where you have the same love, where there's full accord, where there's one mind? And then he says, um, alternatively, there are two things that you should say no to. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Paul is like wise enough to know that there are things that we can do that will hinder or impact or negatively affect those first four. And Paul doesn't want anything to counteract the good thing that God desires to do when the body of Christ is unified because he knows. He knows that this type of behavior alternatively will destroy or undermine the good work of God. And so he gets to like the heart of the matter. And he said, make sure there's nothing that you do that's done out of selfish ambition or rivalry or jealousy or a desire to be better than other people or a desire to like ascend the ladder regardless of who it is that you step on because you know that perception of that individual with that, with that mindset is that they don't matter. Paul's like that self-centered, me first lifestyle that you were so accustomed to living has no place in the body of Christ. It has no place in the body of Christ. It doesn't fit. Like if you want to be out of tune, if you want to be out of tune, then live that way. I'm not encouraging you to live that way. I'm just saying like when you make yourself the priority, whether it's here in this room or online or when you text or as you have conversations with other people, Paul's like, not only that, but, but say no to conceit. Say no to conceit. Conceit. Say no to that 
Arab superiority or smugness or snobbery or self-importance. Can I go through that just again? A sense of superiority, you know, like you live as if you're, you think you're better than other people or you're smug or you're a snob or there's a sense of self-importance. You know, um, you, we run into situations all the time that give us the choice to either live that way or to reject that. And then he sums it all up by saying, be interested in each other's interests. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Um, in other words, in other words, don't be just so consumed about what is going on in your life and what you think is best for you and how everyone should just concede to your agenda. Exalt the needs of other people even above your own. Let me ask you a question tonight. How many of you would say that that comes easy for you? Raise your hand. Oh, God bless you guys, not me. I mean, really, you? Really? I'm like, you know, I mean, is it? I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to exalt the needs of other people above our own needs. I think sometimes, you know, it's like the last thing that's on our mind. And you might be thinking tonight, by the way, I just would say to you, for sure, in the unregenerate realm, this doesn't, this doesn't happen. It doesn't happen out in the world, but it's supposed to happen in the church. And when we live in a place where we are interested in the interests of other people and exalting them above our own, when we're taking the back seat, when we're taking the lowest seat at the table, um, when we're willing to set aside our schedule and our time and our agenda and focus on somebody else's, like that's a miracle, I would say. That's miraculous. And that's what causes, that's one thing at least that causes the church to shine. You know, you might be thinking tonight, well, why should I do that? And my answer to you is because he did that. Yeah. Because he did that, right? I mean, you, you go through this list and it's like, man, that, that sounds like a lot of work. That kind of sounds like a pain. It, it, sounds, it sounds difficult, pastor. Like, give me one reason. Give me one reason why I should live my life like that. And the one reason is all wrapped up in one name, and his name is Jesus. It's because, it's because this, is, this is what he did. And Paul, like, Paul feels it, right? Paul feels the, the provocation of that question. And so this is exactly where he goes. He says, have this mind, the one I've been talking about to you, the mind that is like-minded, the same love mind, the full accord mind, the one mind mind, the mind that rejects selfish ambition and conceit. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right, and then he goes into this amazing description. I would just, I would just say to you guys, like these verses from verse five to verse 11, I would encourage you to memorize this. Hide this away in your heart. Read it, reread it, meditate on it. Ask God to reveal his son to you through these words because they're powerful. Paul's like, Paul tees himself up. I don't know if you golf, but you know, when you pull out the driver, you, you know, before you pull your driver out, you put the ball on the tee, you put the tee in the ground, you pull the driver out. Because it's the driver, the ball is set up high because you're, gonna, you're just going to 
hit that ball as hard as you possibly can, but the ball is teed up, and this is what Paul has done. He's teed himself up to describe Christ in ways um, from, a, from, a, from a scriptural point of view that are almost unparalleled. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8 is a Greek psalm. It's a Greek psalm. It's a song. This was, it doesn't read like this to us because we don't sing it. By the way, Sam, Tristan, Daniel, you should, you should put this to music. This was a hymn in the early church. This was communally sung among the people of God. This is a poetic narrative. Like there's something beautiful that, that Paul writes here that, was, that had been, I think, collected over the course of time and would have been familiar with the people because this was what they were singing about their Savior. And not only that, but this is Paul's master story. Verses 5 to 11 um, represent the epicenter of Paul's life. They represent the epicenter of Paul's preaching. It represents the epicenter of Paul's apostolic ministry. Paul points to the cross of Christ, which is the center of human history. And not only that, it is the ultimate revelation of the triune God. I would say to you tonight, if you want to understand God, look to the crucified Christ. Like you might be thinking tonight, I want to know what God is like. I want to know what God is like. I want to know the attributes of God. I want to know how God comports himself. I want to know who God is. Well, look to the crucified God. You say, crucified God, what does that mean? God incarnate. It means that Christ was not just a mere mortal or a mere man, but he was God incarnate, which is precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The greatest display of the character of God is found through the crucifixion. And so this is what he says. He says in verse 6, look at this with me tonight. Uh, underline, highlight, circle, make your notes in your Bible, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The first thing the Apostle Paul says here about Jesus is this, Jesus is God. Jesus, maybe you didn't know that tonight, newsflash for you, he's more than a prophet, more than a rabbi, more than a good moral example to follow, he is God. Morphe, he is in the form of God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped because he had it in his hand already. He is not only the Son of God, he is God the Son. He is not just a temporal being, he is eternal. He is the ancient of days. He is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the unchanging one. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is so worthy of our worship in in all ways and in all things. He is absolutely, totally divine. He is deity. He's worthy of your praise tonight. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this, who being in the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. He's just not another guy. He's just not another guy. He's just not, and, and this is a thing for, for sure. There's that piece of humanity that Paul's going to talk about in a minute. But before he gets to, to humanity, he talks about deity. He talks about deity because this is what he's going to do. He's going to take you on a journey. These verses take you on a journey. Paul takes you from the, the height of Christ's exaltation before his incarnation. 
He takes you to the place where, like Isaiah saw God sitting on the throne and the angels circling around the throne, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? The, the holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Christ in all of his glory. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He was in the form of God. He did not count equality uh, with God a thing to be grasped because he already had it in hand. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of men. So this is a, this is a, a massive contrast here, right? Paul is saying, though, though he is equal with God, though he is fully God, Though he was in the form of God, he did the unthinkable. Like the contrast, Paul understands that these Philippians have had their, their minds formed by the, by the exaltation of, of, of Caesar. You know, the highest position of power in the land was Caesar, considered to be God incarnate. And Paul is drawing a contrast between what they've seen in the world, what's been placed up as, as a, a deity to be worshipped. Paul draws their attention, the contrast from that to the person of Jesus Christ, who though he could have, though he could have stayed in that position of self-exaltation, he did the unthinkable. And what did he do? He humbled himself. He humbled himself. I mean, it's an amazing thing to consider when you tie the word God and humble together. God humbled himself. That's a powerful concept to consider. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He did something that no one would have expected. The, the Greek word here is kenosis, um, it means that Jesus in the incarnation willed not to use every divine attribute that, is, that was at his personal capacity. Let me say it again. The incarnation, Christ emptied himself at the incarnation. It doesn't mean that he stopped being God. It means that he willed not to use every divine attribute at his personal capacity. He chose self-abandonment. He chose self-abandonment and self-giving humility. He took a course of action that was the exact opposite of what would have been expected in the world. Even though he was God, he, and he could have exploited the reality that he was God, he could have exalted himself like the emperors would have done in Rome at the time, he took the other track. He chose another trajectory. He had a different purpose. He did altogether what no one would expect God to do. He humbled himself, emptied himself, willed not to use the divine attributes at his own personal capacity and exercise, and he took on the form of a bondservant. He chose selflessness over selfishness. I just want to say that again. He chose selflessness over selfishness. Um, in self-giving humility, what he did 
is a revealed an attribute of God. And this is one of the most astounding things, I believe, about this portion of Scripture that I've already mentioned. One of the attributes of God, of course, we love that God is merciful and gracious. And, and let me just give you a minute. What, what are some of the attributes that you love about God? Like, what do you love most about God? He is what? Gracious, loving, kind, just, faithful, sovereign, almighty. I mean, how often does humble come to your own personal list? And I'm with you, I love, I love all of those like you've said, but man, the humility, the humbleness of God. I mean, if it wasn't for the humbleness of God, we would have never had the incarnation. If, if it wasn't for the, the fact that he was willing to exalt your need over his own. I'm not saying that God has need of anything. Let me say it differently. To exalt your interest over his own interest, right? To put your own personal need above his own personal need. To love you so much that he was willing to condescend, right? To, to transverse the eternal and to to, to willfully set aside, as it were, to divest himself in a way of those divine attributes and live among us. I mean, that level of condescension is beyond what we could ever even imagine. His willingness to do that came because he was humble. He fully immersed himself in the human experience. He he, he chose to condescend and embrace weakness and suffering and pain and loneliness, right? I love the song that we sing. Oftentimes, there's no shadow that won't light up. There's no mountain that, won't, that he won't climb up. No wall he won't kick down. No lie he won't tear down. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to walk that road because he exalted your need, he, he, before you were ever born, 2,000 years ago, you say, wait a minute, he's just man. I say, no, he's not just man, he's God incarnate. He knew that you would live. He knew that you would sin. He knew that you would, by nature, be separated from the Father. And so, and so, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. But 2,000 years ago, I would just say that he had the capacity in his omniscience to have you in mind when he was crucified. He took the form of a bondservant. This is what Paul does. Paul starts here, and then he shows this downward trajectory. It goes, it goes down further and further and further. The form of a bondservant. This is, we're talking about God who should be served actually being a God who serves us. And, and in the Greek, there's this beautiful contrast. It reads like this, morphe theos, morphe doulos. That's the contrast. That's the contrast. Form of God, morphe theos, form of bondservant, morphe doulos. These two things seem like a contradiction to us. But he had to become a servant so he could wrap his arms around your sin and carry it to Calvary where he could be crucified on a cross and rescue you. He chose your sin so that you could be forgiven. He walked in weakness so you could have strength. He chose to submit himself 
to even authorities and principalities in a worldly point of view so that you could have freedom. He chose a path of pain so that you could be healed. He was willing to endure suffering so that you could experience his joy. The Bible says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a ransom. You know, there was something that he paid so that you could be delivered. That's what a ransom is. You had sinned and I had sinned and there was no solution for our sin. It wasn't our righteousness, it wasn't our goodness, it wasn't our comparison one to another. It wasn't our religious works, it wasn't our philanthropies, it wasn't our money giving, it wasn't our morality. You guys know that this is oftentimes the very thing people will point to when you say to, to them, hey, do you think that you're going to heaven? And oftentimes the answer is, yeah, well, yeah, I think I am going to heaven. Well, why do you think that? Well, because, you know, I'm, 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 <laughs> because I don't work for Hamas, you know, I'm not, I'm not in ISIS, I'm not in, you know, in, inevitably people like pick the worst of the worst. And, and you know, that whole self-comparison thing is never gonna stand as an argument before God. Like, could you imagine? You can get away with it here in this planet, but when you stand before God and say, hey, you know what, God, I, I didn't join Hamas. Like, does that count? Is that, does that count for something? And, and, and the issue is this, like, the Bible says, the Bible says, it says this, it says, uh, the Lord's arm is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you. Your sins have, have come between you and your God. And your iniquity has hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's what the Bible says. Like there's, there is a, there is a, a chasm between us that can't be bridged by ourselves. We need, like Job said, a daysman, someone to stand in the gap. And this is precisely what Jesus did. He was, he was incarnate. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He washed people's feet. He died on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the moral commands of the law of God on our behalf, and he rose again from the dead. He, like, this is crazy, you guys. He lives to serve you. I mean, does that not blow your mind? And we serve God, but we serve God because he first served us, right? I mean, you could, yeah. you could phrase it like this. When you wake up in the morning and you pray, it's his privilege and pleasure and joy to meet the needs that exist within your life. This is the heart of Christ, and if it's his heart for us, I'm just saying, it should be our heart one for another. He says he came in the likeness of man. In other words, he joined his divine nature with a human body at, in, at the incarnation. The creator became part of his cre creation. This is the, cre the great condescension. This is, the, this is the humbling of God. This is why we call him Emmanuel, that is to say God with us. This is the mystery of the hypostatic union. This is why we can say he is the crucified God. He is the crucified God. You know, when, when it comes to the person of Christ to understand that you will have in one hand a bucket of things that are absolutely true that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And then you'll have another bucket that are 
that, that's filled with mystery. Like things that you know are true, but you can't get your brain around them. Like you're never going to be able to fully comprehend them. There are aspects to God, brothers and sisters, that there are aspects that are my- mysterious. Embrace the mystery. I- embrace, the, embrace the infinite nature of God. Understand tonight that he is fully God and fully man. And what does that mean? Well, you know what? You'll be plumbing the beauty of that for, for all of eternity. You'll be seeking to look into that mystery and just discover the beauty of Christ in all of it. And then, and then Paul takes us even further into the condescension of Jesus and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Like this is, this is Paul probably saying to these people, this is gonna blow your mind. This is gonna blow your mind. I know that you're thinking this. It's gonna blow your mind and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it's like, even, you know, if Paul could, it was, was putting this in modern vernacular, he'd be like, dude, check this out. This is gonna totally blow your mind. You know, I mean, if it wasn't written and they didn't know and he was kind of preaching it, he would say, are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Because this is gonna blow your mind especially for those of you that are Romans, because you know what I'm gonna say. You know how vile this is. You know how rejected by civilized society this is. You know this is so ugly and nasty and foul that when you're at your parties together, you don't even talk about this. He was crucified. He was crucified. And like you could probably, if you're Roman living at that time, like a shiver would go up your spine. You know, now it's like, we wear a cross uh, on a chain around our neck. It's, it's jewelry. Then it was like repulsive. It was repulsive. It was repulsive to the Roman. It was repulsive to the Jew for someone to die on a tree. The death is a, a male factor. Though it was the worst. It was the worst form of execution reserved for the worst form of criminal. It was the ultimate way to be cursed. It was the greatest ignominy. Even for Israelites, remember the things that Jesus went through. He was crucified outside of the city, rejected by his people, cursed among the people of God by the law of God, excluded from the covenant of life. That's what people thought. That's what Jews thought when Christ was crucified. Outside the city walls, not even worthy to be considered one of us. And Paul is just painting this picture of how ultimate, how ultimate God's love is for you. Like, I, I don't know, and we'll get to these, the rest of these verses next week. I don't know how deeply you're convinced of that. I don't know. I, don't, I, I do know as a pastor and a Christian, I do know as a Christian, man, there are times where I'm like, God, how, could, how can you love me? How can you love me? You know, like, I know what you've done, and I still struggle, and, and God, I say stupid stuff, and I make bad decisions, and I don't always treat people the way that I know you want me to treat people, and, and yet, yet, God, you don't stop loving. You don't stop loving. Are you convinced tonight? Like, what is it gonna take to convince you of the love of God for you? Don't put God in a place where it's like, uh, you're only as good as the next miracle that you do for me. 
You know, where, where it's like, yeah, God, I'll believe, I'll believe that you love me when you did it. And I, I just, I'm just saying to you from the point of scripture, he already did do. He already did do. Like what you and I do when it comes to the love of God and being convinced of it in our life is we anchor ourselves to the cross of Christ. Like we read this poetic narrative. We read this hymn of the early church. We sing it together and say, you, Jesus, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped because you had it in hand and yet, morphe theos, morphe doulos, you came in the form of a bondservant. In the likeness of man, you were numbered among the transgressors. You, you, you hungered and you thirsted and you were tempted in all points as we are tempted. When you were hanging on the cross, you declared your humanity when you said, I thirst. And then not only that, but you suffered. You were willing to die. You experienced the result of the curse. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what does he do? He comes and he experiences the consequence of the curse that was our fault in the first place. And the creator numbers himself with the creation and experiences death. But not death from old age, not death from, from some sickness. He's crucified as a male factor. He's dragged outside of the city, considered to be unworthy, to be amongst the people. He hangs on a tree and, and he experiences a curse according to the law because the law says, cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. He's considered to be from the Roman point of view, who could be, who, how could you even consider this to be a god? Our gods, Jupiter and Apollos and, you know, the pantheon of gods, they would never submit to something like this, but our, our God, let me just wrap up. You've been patient. Our God's a humble God. Our God's a humble God. Our God's a loving God. Our God is so concerned, so deeply moved and concerned by the interests in your life that he, he didn't just theorize about it. He didn't just write a song about it. He was, he was incarnate. He was incarnate. He humbled himself. He walked this earth. And so centralize Jesus in your life. Centralize him. I don't, I don't know how fragmented your thinking has been. I don't know how distracted your heart has been. I don't know if, you know, the ritual of Christianity has kind of overpaced your love for him. Just come, thanks for being patient tonight. Come to a place tonight where you just give him the full attention, affection, love, and consideration that he deserves and let him bless you the way that he wants to.